So, uh, Bruce, you've been a long-time focuser and a long-time meditator. Do you want to maybe share some of this history? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, all of us have long, complicated histories in our uh, spiritual lives. But the piece of my own personal history I'd like to share, because it's most relevant to my thoughts and understanding of how one puts the idea of focusing or felt sensing together with meditation. Um, I think understanding something about my personal history about it would be helpful to kind of set the stage for what it is I really want to say. Uh, back in 1999, I went to a medita 10-day meditation retreat and it was a Vipassana retreat. And somewhere in about the fifth day of that retreat, I um, said to myself, gee, I wonder why I'm not doing more focusing these days. Because focusing by that time had been my love for decades. And yet somehow it had kind of gotten lost as well as the meditation. And um, I began to have a sense of the relationship between, particularly between Vipassana and, medit and uh, focusing. And then I remembered a story that actually continues after that meditation retreat, because I wrote to Jean Jenlin, because I had remembered a story of a piece of a conversation he and I had had in which we were talking about the kind of, I don't know, ordinary thing we would say to people when we did focusing workshops, which was, please don't get focusing all mixed up with other things. We, you know, you've done all kinds of other practices. Please learn focusing separately. And then if you want to combine it afterwards, feel free. And so he and I were joking about how often we had to say to people, yes, there is some relationship between hypnotism and focusing, but let's not go there. Let's keep, you know, right. We were laughing about how often we had to say that kind of thing. And he said, told me a story. And he said, there was an exception to that where there was a young Asian man who uh, came up and talked to him after a workshop and said, Focusing is very much like my meditation practice. And Gene said to himself, oh, God, here we go again. But in fact, the kid described his meditation practice. And Gene said, wow, that's really like focusing. And so he had told me that story in about 1980. I had had that conversation with Gene. So here I am in 1999, nearly 20 years later. And um, I'm sitting in a Vipassana retreat and I'm thinking, boy, this dovetails too powerfully with my meditation, with my focusing practice. So I wrote Gene after I got home and said, reminded him of that story and said to him, what kind of meditation was it that that kid had described to you? And he said, Vipassana. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like one of those strange kind of coming togethers. And the kind of Vipassana that this kid had described to Gene is not what people usually think of Vipassana. It's a 
kind of rarefied form, but it did. It is the beginning of my thoughts about focusing and medit of the combining of focusing and meditation, because I remembered the conversation and I had a sense by then of what Vipassana was and how these two things came together. So with that history kind of there, um, what comes next is what actually happened when I began to play with the idea. At that point, I didn't know anybody else in the world who was even considering putting focusing together with meditation. So I was kind of isolated and alone with it. I'm sure there were other people who had been thinking about it, but I didn't know them. Um, and so I began to use my focusing practice as the beginning of a meditation so that I would sit and notice what felt sense or what bodily reactions were happening inside of me and bring my full meditative attention directly to that feeling in my belly or in my chest or my solar plexus or wherever it happened to be and just sit with it. And it was different than what I usually thought of of focusing because in focusing, I would interact with the felt sense. I would ask it questions or I would um, encourage it or have some kind of dialogue with that thing. Whereas when I did it in a meditative way, it was just bringing my pure attention to it. Now, when I say pure attention, I don't mean clinical attention. I think it's warmer than that, a kind of generosity of a kind of focusing attention. So it had a, a, a warm, open kind of sense, an inviting sense that I would bring to the felt sense and invite it to get larger or invite it to open or that kind of thing. So, so the, what, what, I'm, what I'm hearing you say is yeah. that um, in that uh, earlier practice of combining focusing and meditation, uh, you'd start with the focusing mode to get into, to notice the felt sense. If you had been continuing in focusing, you'd be engaging with it. Right. But instead of engaging with it, it was more of an attitude of warm contemplation uh, right. observing as opposed to engaging. Yes. Uh, even observing is a little cooler than it is. I think it's more joining with or um, sitting close to or sitting friendly with. Uh, mm -hmm. Observing feels like a different thing. Now, sometimes if in my own experience now, I would say if something is really hard to sit with, I'm more likely to move to a more observing place. But in general, I choose to feel kind of, I sometimes have described it as like if you were sitting with a little kid who was worried or nervous, you wouldn't just sit there in that observing sense. You would put your arm around them or you would, you know, sit close and yeah, yeah, so that's a warm presence, yeah, an accompaniment, uh, just being with. Yes, yeah, companioning. Uh, that, that word has some problems with it, but yes, it's essentially that. Um, but it's not 
it, it, in the meditative version of this, it's not interactive. And I can only be that warm if it's something that does not overwhelm or threaten me or, you know, is, um, you know, friendly or capable. I'm capable of being friendlier without getting lost in it. Yeah. Um, so that's an important distinction that we're not talking about something that's a neutral tool, but right. there is a human being who's affected by the content and uh, the being with is going to be influenced by the nature of the content and the degree of threat that it might represent. Right. Yes. Well said. Thank you. Um there were two other influences that came along for me about it. One was I read an article of Andrew, uh, Andrew McDonald. McDonald, where he talked about a very powerful transformative experience he had where he began to combine focusing and meditation and what he said was, it's not my way, but it influenced me and helped me see more deeply into the whole subject, is he said he sits, if he can meditate and really bring his full presence to what's inside of him, he just meditates. If he has difficulty, he switched to focusing until he could feel more synonymous or in alignment with his felt sense. Hmm. And uh, that, if he called it ego syntonic and ego dystonic, as I remember it. But I understood that. And, and it, while it doesn't quite fit my own experience, it did help me begin to see that there was a continuum between what I was calling meditation and what I call focusing, and that it was not either one or the other. It was like a continuum that I could move up and down a scale on. Yeah, so there is a notion of continuum, and there's also a notion of defining the nature of the interaction or defining the nature of the being with that's going to be on a continuum between sitting with, uh, companioning maybe, or that warm presence versus the more interactive exploration. Right. Yeah. And so in essence, the practice that we're talking about essentially became my meditative practice. It also therefore influenced much of what I had thought of as focusing, right? So meditation became part of my focusing simultaneously with focusing becoming part of my meditation. Mm -hmm. And so differences began to shift more about what was happening inside of me made a bigger difference in what I did than did uh, whether I had chosen to do focusing or chosen to meditate to begin with. Yeah. The, the yeah. content influenced my approach. Um, let me see. And then there was one other kind of thing that had a lot of influence on me about this. Uh, wait, I had it clear in my mind. I, what 
began to happen was I began to share this meditative process that I was doing with a few other people who I thought would get it. Some of were people in the focusing community, some of which were just meditators, but who had an, a similar orientation to meditation as I had had. And I began to see that it was a shareable process. And so about Four years ago, I think now, um, I formed a small meditation group. I had been teaching meditation at a Zen center for about seven or eight years or leading a group and doing some teaching, but mostly leading a group there. And uh, I began to have this sense of wanting to go my own direction that I was never really a Zen person, though I loved a lot of what I learned there. And I loved the people at the center where I was a lot. I felt really did and continue to feel very connected, but it just wasn't my path. And so I began to invite a few people, actually a neighbor of mine asked me to form a group. And I did that and that was about four years ago. So now I have four years of experience of teaching this form of focusing and meditation to, um, I don't know, we generally have 14 or 15 people a week and some people have come and gone. So I would say there's probably a group of about 25 or 30 people now who have learned this process from me and in so doing have been able to give me feedback about what really works for them and what doesn't work for them. And so it's had, it's matured. And that's probably the thing that's most important for me to talk about is how that has matured. So here's what I would like to say. Yeah. yeah. About the more mature form of this practice now. One is what I learned from meditation about a capacity to concentrate is very helpful and very important. Just the ability to bring my attention to a single focus and allow it to stay there without having to fight or struggle or try to force myself to that kind of concentration. But it is more natural to me and now to the people who I teach. And to bring that concentration to a felt sense, to a bodily sense of something, um, is extremely helpful. Like, to be able to do that is wonderful. To be able to do it with a really concentrated attention ups the level of it. It gives it a deeper, uh, a deeper, richer texture. So, Bruce, just uh, to interrupt you a moment. It's okay. No, fine. Uh, the, uh, so, just uh, for people who are listening, that the mature form you're talking about is something that's not a process of focusing followed by a process of meditation or vice versa, yeah. but it is something about uh, connecting to a felt sense. It's a felt sensing Mm -hmm. uh, and bringing to that felt sensing the meditative quality of focus, but that of effortless focus as opposed to uh, an efforting of forcing focus. Right. 
that that's very much true. I, I, actually, as you were saying that, I know a good way to say it to you. That there is a co-regulation between what my felt sense is and what my approach to that felt sense is so that it, it's like each influences the other. If I sit and there's something really bugging me or something really tightening me up, then that impacts what I mean, what kind of attention I bring to it. If in fact, when I sit, there's a kind of openness, I can bring a different kind of attention. So they each go up and down in relationship to each other. And, and that for me is what's most, maybe what's most powerful in all of this right. is that co-regulating between felt sensing and meditative practice. Right, right. So, so that uh, notion of co-regulation, uh, mm -hmm. something that is happening uh, as you are in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, the process itself, itself is shaped by what is happening. Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, you know, it's not planned exactly how it's going to come about. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm a little worried about that word. I think it's not co-regulation. That, that sounds different because I know that word in so many other contexts like health. I think it's something more like uh, codependency. <laughs> no, even that has its own other meanings, doesn't it? it it's a co variance. Dance, could you say a dance of the two prides of the... Yeah. Dance is a perfectly good way to say that. Yes, it's a dance between the felt sense and how I approach that felt sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so just I'm going to repeat that. It feels very powerful. The dance between the felt sense uh -huh. and how you approach the felt sense. Yes. Yeah. How we establish a connection, how I establish a connection between the two inside of myself really defines what I mean by a felt sense meditation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's a moment of being with the felt sense in a specific way that's going to vary depending right. on the felt sense. Right. Yes. Um. And I would like to add one piece. I don't know how much time we have, but there's an important piece of that that you and I have talked a lot about over time, which is part of that uh, dance is to get a sense of what the right distance from the felt sense is. Uh, it is my belief and my experience now over a long time to understand that there's a kind of natural right distance that there are times when it feels perfectly right to merge with the felt sense, to dive fully into it. And there are times when it's really right to hold it at a large distance because to move closer raises anxiety and takes me away from a more open, curious, and compassionate place inside of myself. Yeah, so that feels really very powerful, and I want to highlight something there. 
that what we're talking about is something that very clearly is an embodied activity. Right. And uh, embodied is feeling in your body the sensations, the felt sense, and possibly the emotions that this brings up. And so the notion of distance is also an embodied distance, even if in some ways we're talking about it figuratively, but that with intensity comes also the need to act on the distance, to maybe regulate the distance that there is, that dance involves uh, finding the distance from what is the felt sense. Right. You're right. And to make that a little sharper, that part of what I mean by distance really is that if something is really threatening, it is more like a more neutral observing of that. Whereas if something is warm and welcoming, I'm more likely to join with it, reduce the distance dramatically. So I I think that might be helpful if I were listening to hear that difference. So if something is uncomfortable, it is better for me to get greater distance, meaning be a little less friendly and a little less open and really wait until I can relax into a friendlier connection Mm -hmm. rather than trying to force it. Um, I, I do have one other thing to add, Serge, that's kind of off the... Um, trail that we're on, but I think has some importance is that you had an influence on all this. Um, I had really at a point early on where you and I began talking about this, really not described to anybody what I was doing, that who had a perspective, who was both a focusing person and a meditation person, and who knew what other people were doing. So my early conversations with you about it really influenced me and encouraged me. And I would like to acknowledge your influence about that because it did. It encouraged me. You had said to me once, I think this is kind of unique what you're doing. And that was helpful because I really didn't know. I knew that there were other people out there exploring this territory, but I didn't really get it. But I trusted you had and that you talk to a lot of people in that way. So it really was an encouragement to me, and I just want to acknowledge that. I really appreciate your saying so. Yeah. You know, and as you know, um, a lot of what you have been doing has been a very profound influence on how I approach this. Oh, I love that. It, it's, I, I love that, that we have been helpful to each other in that way. Yeah. That's, that's a good thing. Okay, so you have any other questions? I probably as, could... as you come to the notion of distance, uh-huh. um, I think there is an implied um, observation, an implied uh, point that there is an observer, and so um, that there is, you know, an observer who can be either a relatively detached observer or a much warmer and connected observer. But so there is, uh, there's different selves. Or different parts. Yes. Uh, I, I would actually say that that there is a sensing part of myself which senses what the right distance is and senses what the right relationship to what my felt sense is and that that has evolved over time since I've been doing this now for, you know, 
couple of decades, it's like there, there has been an evolution of a sensing part of myself that just knows how to, to, to form myself in relationship to whatever it is that's inside of me. And um, that's really kind of what I mean by right distance. But I choose right distance based on some part of me that senses deeply into the felt sense. And on that basis, I make those choices. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, so, so that um, there is the part mm-hmm. that is experiencing the felt sense and a part that is noticing that experience and is dancing or moving Mm -hmm. to find the right distance from it, uh, which is going to include the warmth or relative detachment, but is also going to include whether there is more of a sitting with or more of um, an, an active exploration, more of a curiosity and of wanting to, to let it move. Absolutely. That's well said and fits my experience pretty directly. Um, so let me just take a minute and see if there's something yeah. else about all that that seems important to say, because there are so many aspects of it that you know, trying to talk about it in 20 minutes or 30 minutes just won't cover. But let me just see if there's something really central. Yeah, there is one other thing I would like to say about it. Um, I love sitting Vipassana. I found it a wonderful practice and have nothing but good things to say about it. But what the combination of focusing in that kind of meditation has offered me is a much more in the moment way to approach life as a whole, not just meditation or not just a practice that I think on a day-to-day basis that something has shifted in me that allows me to bring a deeper part of myself to all my experience because it's become essentially habitual now to kind of keep a running log of what my felt sensing is in a given moment and to be able to figure out how to pay attention to it. So this practice has become more of a daily thing than I felt like Vipassana offered me. I know people who have sat Vipassana for decades and decades, and it certainly has been extremely helpful to them, but it doesn't always translate so well in their day-to-day lives. It's more like they have a meditation practice and they're in a meditative state or they're back to being themselves. I feel like those walls are crumbling inside of me over time and that that the difference between when I'm meditating, when I'm focusing, and when I'm just being in the world is starting to dissolve at a, at a pretty fast clip. And I think that's an important part of this. I think it has advantages in that kind of way that other meditations are much slower to translate into everyday life. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, because there is a built-in interaction or dance with the quality of interaction and the nature of interaction so that everyday life is more in a continuum with that as yes. opposed to being something separated from that. Yes. And I would say that of the reports I get from people who have kind of joined me on this trip, they would say very much that would want me to say that about their experience that it's become a part of their everyday life in a way that has been really meaningful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.